Holy Spirit, ask that you would come and help us understand what you say to us in the Bible and be your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the hardest things about graduate school for me was coming up with a dissertation topic. And then one day I was in class and a professor just casually asked the question, well, why is the ghost in Hamlet from Purgatory? That's a Catholic belief and Hamlet's a Protestant play. And that one question fascinated me and it became the whole basis for my entire dissertation, which I pretentiously titled, The Persistence of Memory, colon, have to have the colon, Reactionary Politics, Sexual Heresy, and Catholic Nostalgia in English Literature, 1533 to 1667. (laughs) And that is a great example of why the letters PhD actually stand for piled higher and deeper. (laughs) Big, long title from one teeny little question. If you want the answer to that question, you'll have to read my dissertation. Boy, howdy, wouldn't that be fun? I think that shows that questions are often more important than answers. You know, the genius of Isaac Newton was not that he discovered gravity. It's that he asked the question, when that apple fell on his head, he asked the question, why did it fall? The apples have been falling for centuries, but only he asked the question. A good question can change your life. Which is why this spring we're going to talk about some of the questions that God asks us in the Bible. And the reason that God asks us questions isn't to grill us as if we were criminals. The reason God asks us questions, that he even asks us questions at all, shows us two things. One, that he wants relationship with us, dialogue. And two, that he wants to help us understand ourselves better. You know, as a shy person, I always appreciate it when someone asks me a question, because that kind of draws me out of my shell. Questions like, why did you choose the career you did? Or how did you and your wife meet? They kind of help me come out of my open up a little bit, and and that creates a relationship. And that's why God asks us questions. There's a psychiatrist named Paul Tournier. One day in prayer, he heard God say to him, why don't you, why are you always asking me questions? Why don't you listen to some of my questions? So from then on, he started to hear God speak in prayer and ask things like, why were you short-tempered with your wife? Or why didn't you confront that patient today? And that led him to answers like, well, I didn't confront the patient because I was afraid to, and I was afraid to because I'm insecure, and I'm insecure because I've got some wounds from my past. God's questions helped him understand himself and drew him closer to God. And that's the case with the first question God asks in the Bible. Where are you? Adam and Eve have just disobeyed him. They've eaten from the one tree he told them not to eat from. And then because they feel guilty, they hide They hide from him, and then God pursues them and asks the question, where are you? And that one question drives the rest of the Bible. In fact, that one question drives the rest of human history. Because human history is really a long story about a loving God in passionate pursuit of a creation that is running away from him. And this makes Christianity absolutely unique. Because in every other religion, we got to figure out how to get to God. But in Jesus, God comes to us. And God's question to Adam and to us, where are you? It's not meant to interrogate us, but to liberate us. Back around the turn of the century, there's a kind of a famous case about a, a train that ran into a wagon loaded with goods on a, at a railroad crossing. And the owner of the wagon sued the railroad for damages. And at the trial, the watchman was called as a witness. And the prosecuting attorney just grilled him and asked him questions like, were you on duty the night of the accident? And the watchman said, yeah. Did you have a lantern? The watchman said, yeah. Did you wave the lantern in warning? The watchman said, yeah. Well, his case or his testimony helped the railroad 
win their case. And afterwards, someone asked him, were you nervous? And the watchman said, I sure was. I was afraid he was going to ask if that lantern was lit. (laughs) God's not like that. God's questions are not meant to just kind of, you know, find our weakness or, or interrogate us. You know, when my kids do something wrong, I usually ask questions like, why did you do that? Didn't you listen to me? You know, why did you disobey? What were you thinking? God doesn't ask that question of Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? And the text says that Adam could hear him walking in the garden, which is this great picture of intimacy. And then God asks him, where are you? And what that shows is that even though Adam and Eve have screwed up, God still wants a relationship with them. God doesn't say, you've messed up, come grovel to me and maybe I'll think about forgiving you. He doesn't say that. Instead, God meets us exactly where we're at and he says to us, I want to be where you are, even if that place is a messy, sinful place, I want to be where you're at. And then what is our response to that pursuing God? Well, we hide from him. Right? That's what Adam does here. We run away and hide. And we do that in all kinds of ways. For instance, we deflect God's questions by blaming other people for our problems. You know, in this story, when God confronts Adam on his sin, you know, Adam ponders the importance of taking personal responsibility and then says, the woman, you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. Right? Adam takes his punishment like a man. He blames his wife. And then he blames God. You know, the woman, you gave me. I told you it wasn't a good idea to make one of those, God, but you did it anyway. (laughs) And we do the same thing sometimes, don't we? My spouse doesn't understand my needs. My parents screwed up. That's why I do the things that I do. We deflect God's questions by blaming others. Another way we keep God away is we cover up. The things that we don't want God or anyone else to see, just like Adam and Eve put on fig leaves. When I did college ministry, we'd sometimes show clips from movies, but the profanity in the movies was always a problem. So my interns would dub over it, and they'd always use the same word to dub over the profanity. My name. So you'd see a character get red in the face and go, oh, Scott Dudley. Frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a Scott Dudley, right? Things like that. Very awkward for me. Well, that's kind of what we do with our junk, right? We kind of try to cover it up, dub over it with something we think maybe sounds holy or whatever. Our achievements, our status, even our church activity are all our fig leaves. Another way that we hide from God is we're too busy to connect with him. Or another way is we have intellectual defenses and we ask questions like, why is there suffering? How can we prove God exists? Great questions. But sometimes we use them to keep God at arm's length. In a lot of ways, we hide from God. And this is an important point. Okay, this is important. Because it's not so much our sin that separates us from God. God can handle our junk. It's our pretended goodness that pushes God away. Our justifications, our self-sufficiency, it's our pretended goodness that keeps God at arm's length. And that arm is ours. And the reason we hide from God is simple. And Adam says it here. We don't trust God. Adam says to God, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. We run because we're afraid that either God's going to punish us for our sin or I think more common, we're afraid he's going to take away all of our fun. That's how the serpent tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying in the first place, right? He said, God's holding out the good stuff on you. You better eat this. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. 
I believe all sin stems from the fear that God does not have our best interests at heart, so we do things our own way. When he says, save sex for marriage, we think it's because he wants to keep us from having fun instead of give us a whole wonderful sex life with our spouse. When he says, forgive your enemies, we, we think it's because he wants to make us miserable rather than liberate us from bitterness. We don't trust that God has our best interests at heart, so we run away and do things our own way. My dad sent me an email a while back, one of those email things about prayers that kids have supposedly prayed, real prayers. One, prayer, one kid prayed, dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I really wanted was a puppy. I think that's kind of how a lot of us are. We're just sure God's going to give us a baby brother when what we really want is a puppy. Do you trust that God has your best interests at heart? If we don't, we hide from him. And the result is our lives just get wrecked. Right? Because God does have our best interests at heart. And when we engage the questions he asks us, that leads us into a deeper relationship with him. Not just a religion or not just going to church, but an actual deeper relationship with the living God of the universe. When we engage his questions. And that heals us and frees us in a whole lot of ways. You know, for starters, he takes away our shame when we get in deep relationship with him. In this story, Adam says, I hid because I was naked. And then God asks the second question in the Bible. Who told you that you were naked? And the Hebrew word for naked is related to the word that describes the serpent. So in other words, God says, who told you that you were snaked? Who told you that you were like a serpent? I didn't. That's the devil. Adam, you are my son. I love you. I want to be with you. You see, honest, real relationship, honest, real relationship with God takes away our shame. He also forgives us. In this story, he sacrifices an innocent animal to make Adam and Eve clothes to cover their shame. Now, you don't need a Ph.D. in literature to know that that's foreshadowing of Jesus who dies so that we can be forgiven. Honest, real relationship with God is also the only thing that will actually make us whole. Alcoholics Anonymous was founded by two Christians who, through God's power, got sober. But did you know that the first program they started didn't work? And so they went to their pastor and they asked why. And the pastor said, well, is this, the, is this the program that got you free from alcohol? And they said, no. They'd actually devised a program based on a lot of psychological data, not on how they actually got free of alcohol. So they scrapped the first program and started the 12-step program, seven steps of which are about turning to God for help. And for the founders of AA, specifically, that meant Jesus. Only relationship with Jesus sets us free. So... How do we stop hiding from God and allow ourselves to get found by him so we can have that deep, real relationship with him that isn't just about religion or going to church, but it's an actual connection with the living God? How do we do that? Well, you're doing one of them right now, and that's worship. Because that's a place where we can hear God speak to us. Another way is to let the Bible read you. We need to read the Bible to know who God is, but the Bible can also read us. So, for instance, as you read the stories, particularly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put yourself in the place of the characters and ask, how am I like this character or that character in the story? How am I like the Pharisees or Zacchaeus or, or whatever it is? That's a way of allowing God to ask us questions that help us understand ourselves better and lead to a deeper, real relationship with Him. But I think maybe the most important way to be found by God is to get brutally honest with him. This is where real relationship with God starts. You know, God's question, where are you, is an invitation to get real with God about where we are 
spiritually, emotionally, in every way you can think of. And, you know, one of the things I love about the Bible is folks in the Bible are real good at being real raw and real honest with God. The prophet Jeremiah, for instance, at one point says to God, you have deceived me and I was overpowered. And some scholars think that the, the actual Hebrew word there means raped. God, you raped me. It is very strong language. Now, I am not saying, you know, be rude to God, but we can be real honest with him about all kinds of things. In starters, we can be honest with him about our sin. A good prayer to pray is, Jesus, here is the raw, unvarnished truth about me. And then don't euphemize. You know, in, in, a, in a culture where we have pre-owned cars instead of used cars, it's a little kind of easy to get vague on the whole sin thing, you know. So instead of praying something like, Lord, I need to target holiness as a growth opportunity. <laughs> or, Lord, I seem to have a problem with human relational adjustment and I underperform in networking. You know, how about trying, Lord, I really hurt people because I'm so selfish. I'm a sinner. Get honest. And also get specific. Don't confess your sins the way I do laundry, which is to kind of pack in too many clothes so tightly that no water actually gets between them. The result is they're not clean. That's kind of how we sometimes confess our sin, all in a big lump. Forgive my sin. As a result, we don't feel clean. You know, pray about each one specifically. Lust, selfishness, gossip. And then keep asking yourself, why do I do this? Why do I do this? So, for instance, maybe you'd pray something like, God, I told those people I was late to the meeting because of traffic, when in reality I just didn't give myself enough time to get there. God, I lied to them. And, Lord, I think the reason I lied to them is because I was trying to control my image. And the reason I did that is because I'm insecure. Would you please heal me? And he does and he will. But you know what? It's not just our sins we can be honest about with God. We can be honest with God about our feelings. Lord, I'm angry. I'm hurting. I'm afraid. We can be honest about our disappointments with God. Lord, it doesn't feel like you're helping here. We can be honest with God about everything. Not because God doesn't know what we're thinking and feeling. He knows. But saying it helps us talk about it with him. I know of a teenage girl who was terminally ill, and she knew she was dying, but her parents kept pretending she was going to recover. Well, finally, the parents admitted that she was going to die, and, and, and the girl burst into tears, and she said, I've known that all along, but now I can finally talk with you guys about this and be real. The reason to be honest with God is so we can talk with Him and finally be real and start experiencing Him as a real person and a real relationship. And then we need to take time to listen to the ways He talks back, through Scripture, through friends, through the thoughts in our head that are not our thoughts. And what we hear back from him should always carry the mark of love and grace. You know what? If you get honest with God about, about, what, about what's really going on inside of you and you, you feel slimy afterwards, then you have not been listening to the voice of God. That's the enemy. Or that's your own insecurity, but not God. You know, because of my eastern Washington roots, I like both kinds of great music, country and western. Because they have some great lines in them. I mean, you know, lines like, you were only a splinter as I slid down the banister of life, right? I mean, that's fantastic. Or one of my favorites, you ain't much fun since I quit drinking. That's poetry, right? I mean, Shakespeare, move over. I could write a dissertation on those. It's that, if that's the kind of thing you're hearing, okay, that is not the voice of God. That kind of harsh criticism, not the voice of God. That's the devil. That's your insecurity. God's voice sets us free. I have a friend who was having a lot of troubles in his career and also a lot of troubles with women. In fact, every relationship he had just blew up disastrously, in part because of him. He used women to get what he wanted. 
He was emotionally distant. And to top it off, he couldn't see that the common denominator in all of these relationships was him. So he kept blaming everyone else. Well, one night he was mad at God about all this, feeling lonely, and he, was, he started smoking and, and drinking alcohol just to numb out the pain, and he started yelling at God, you know, I want to get married and you're not helping, and my career is in the toilet, God, where are you? In the middle of that, in his mind, he heard his name, Joel. And then the phrase, the old is gone, the new has come, Joel, I would rather die than lose you. And he knew that was God. And he spent the rest of that night having a long talk with Jesus that began, Lord, here is the raw, unvarnished truth about me. He got real honest about his sin, about his feelings, about his fears. He prayed things like, Lord, it doesn't feel like you're helping. Please, I'm lonely. I need you to be here. And suddenly God became a real living being that he was having a relationship with, not a theological idea. And that was a turning point in his life. And he's continued in that kind of intimate dialogue with God, and that has changed him over the years. He's less angry, more peaceful. He began opening up to others. His relationships got better. He got more joy. He started serving by mentoring college students. And he stopped hiding from God through alcohol and anger and blaming others. And yes, eventually, he got married. He got honest with God and honestly answered God's questions, where are you, and that set him free. You see, the security of Jesus' love gives us permission to do some truth-telling about ourselves with God. And then he becomes real to us. There's a book called My Heart, Christ's Home. And in it, Jesus comes into a man's home, and the man shows him the living room and the kitchen and the dining room. But then Jesus says, you know, there's an odor in here. Something's dead, and it's coming from that hall closet. What's inside? And the man says, oh, nothing. You don't want to look in there. No, 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 nothing to look at there. And Jesus said, yeah, I do want to look because it's for whatever is in that hall closet that I came for. And Jesus keeps insisting. So finally the man hands over the keys to the hall closet and Jesus opens it and goes in and begins to to clean it out. You see, God does not say to us, you better clean up your act and then you can come to me and maybe, maybe, maybe I'll forgive you. No, God wants relationship with us so badly that he pursues us. And in Jesus, he became one of us and died to forgive our sins. And when he sees whatever is in that hall closet... The sins, the fears, the things we've done, the things we have not done, the feelings, he does not run away. In fact, that's where he meets us. Not just in the study where we're looking smart, not just in the living room where we're ready to receive company. Jesus is waiting for you at that closet, that same stupid, useless closet that you got hiding away all this junk that you don't want to even look at. Jesus longs to meet you, especially there. And clean it out and make you new again. So the question is, where are you? Where are you emotionally? Where are you spiritually? Where are you in every other way? And will you this week stop hiding from God and engage some of the questions he asks? And will you get real honest with him about your sins and your feelings and your fears, your hopes, your happiness, all of it, and about why you do the things you do so that he can become a living being, a living person you can relate to so that you can be healed? Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who opens the door, I will come in and be with him. But what he will not do, folks, is he will not break that door down. He's a gentleman, so you're going to have to invite him in. And not just into your life in general, but every part of your life, to say, Jesus, come into my marriage. Jesus, take the steering wheel of my career. Jesus, come into my parenting. Jesus, here is the truth about me. Please enter this truth and make me whole. And he does, and he will. 
The psalmist says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. The secrets of my thoughts, the wonders of my way. Lord, before I have a word on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And lead me in the everlasting way. Jesus calls you by name. And he asks, where are you? Will you answer him? Jesus, we lay our sin before you. And we name it for what it is. And we lay before you our fears, our hurts, our feelings, our hopes, our joys. We name those for what they are. Lord, thank you that you take us just as we are and not as we should be. Please heal us and make us whole and we will give you the glory. In your name, amen.